Before we get started, I want to tell you about my new book. It's called The New Mobility Handbook, Rethinking How We Get Around Cities. The book builds on my work on the Smarter Cars podcast here over the last three years as we've explored autonomous vehicles, ride hail, and then micromobility and the impact of all of these new technologies on cities. New mobility options are incredibly popular and can encourage multimodal travel in ways that public transit has not. But these options have also created new challenges for cities that can't be solved by technology alone. We need to combine these new mobility modes with urbanist policies to keep our roads moving. Transportation in cities will not be an either-or solution. We don't have to choose between ride services, bikes and scooters, or getting everyone to ride the bus. It's not either or, it's and. We're going to need all of these technologies working together to rethink how we get around cities. The New Mobility Handbook offers a grand unifying theory of sorts for how we can have the benefits and convenience of new mobility options while also meeting city goals to encourage multimodal travel and reduce traffic and pollution. If you're not familiar with the principles behind urbanist policies like congestion pricing, transit priority, reduction in parking, and reallocation of street space, the New Mobility Handbook provides an introduction to these policies and how they can be used together with new mobility technologies to improve transportation in cities. The New Mobility Handbook is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle versions. I hope you enjoy the book. This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles and the future of transportation. Welcome to Season 5. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. In this episode, we're talking with Jewel Lee, the Chief Operating Officer of AutoX, a company making an autonomous driving system and currently testing both in China and here in the United States. Jewel, welcome to the show. Hi, Michelle. Glad to be here. Can you start by telling us what AutoX does and a little background on the company? Of course. AutoX is a level four self-driving technology company. We were founded back in 2016 in September, and we were founded on the mission of democratizing autonomy. And what that means is that we want all of the vehicles running on the street every day to be driven by AutoX driver. It can be a vehicle carrying passengers or carrying goods. It can be vehicles of all sizes, like SUV, sedan, a van or pickup truck or semi-truck. So in a sense, we're building a vast network of AI drivers, which we call the AutoX drivers, that can drive all different kinds of vehicles, doing different tasks to serve us. And your company is based in Hong Kong, is that right? Yeah, the global headquarter is set in Hong Kong. And then tell us about your operations in the United States. Sure. We have two offices uh, in the United States, one in San Jose that has the longest history, actually. There is another one in San Diego. And you're doing R&D and engineering work in the United States? Yes, there's also some pilots that we're doing for the purpose to build a better driver that can serve the specific business use cases. And who are the main investors in AutoX? There are a bunch of financial investors, uh, especially from the earlier days. And later on, we have gotten two of the auto OEMs as our investors, including the Shanghai Auto 
and also Dongfeng Motors. These are the number one and number two largest OEMs from China. Also, we've got Alibaba as one of our investors recently last year. There is also a MediaTek,、uh, which is a Taiwanese company as well. And you guys are operating in China as well as in the United States. Who are your main competitors in China? I think our audience here is familiar with a lot of the companies in the United States that are building an autonomous driver, like Waymo or Aurora. But who are the competitors that you have in China? That's a great question. I think when you look at the the landscape of the industry, there are a lot of similarities、uh, between the U.S. and China market, but the difference is also huge. The similarity is that for level four full autonomy, the most valuable markets in both countries are the same. The biggest use cases. That is the robo taxi, the robo delivery, and robo truck.、Um, but the difference in the landscape is that the competition in the U.S. is a lot more extreme. There is Amazon now with Zooks.、Um, there is Alphabet. There is GM, Cruise, Volkswagen, Ford, Argo, and Uber, Apple, Intel, Neuro, Aurora. There are a lot of competitors in the U.S. market. We can easily name ten of them. Which have raised a lot of funding, that are having a big operations. But when you look at China market, the competition is a lot less fierce. There are some bigger companies like Baidu and Didi. These are the only two major companies that has a tech background. The others are startups like ourselves, and also Pony got AI, which got investment from Toyota, and very few others. So the competition fierceness is is a lot different. It seems like you have Chinese ownership and the ability to operate in China as a Chinese company, which, as you're pointing out, many of the American companies are not allowed to test or operate autonomous vehicles in China. So your competition is much less in China. So why operate in the United States at all? That's a good question. I think we have always positioned ourselves as a global company. That's one of the reasons why we're setting Hong Kong, actually not really mainland China. So with this flexibility, and we're creating the driver. We're also not public news right now, but we're in discussions with other Asian countries as well. For example, Southeast Asia. It's a great market, and the driving style is very similar. <laughs> uh, they're all similar when it comes to a very populated urban scenario to what we have been accumulating, the miles that we have been accumulating.、Um, so another thing is, it's not really like a, a U.S. company can't operate in China. But when we look at the U.S. companies, they are usually not operating anywhere else in U.S. at this moment. They're only in the U.S. right now, which I understand because. Taking a market is already difficult enough. Taking a lot of markets at the same time, it's not as simple as just let's set up an entity and start doing business there. There are some foreign companies in in China as well. We have seen Aptiv. Their Shanghai office is very close to ours. <laughs> it's within like ten minutes drive. So let's talk about the Auto X driver technology that you guys are building. Tell us a little bit about the stack. Can you tell us about each of the pieces and anything that's unique about it, or decisions that you've made about how to put together your technology stack? Yeah, 
the way I would describe the AutoX driver is maybe a little different from how we would usually describe it. Usually, people think about perception, they think about prediction, etc., in these components. But I want to jump out and see it in a bigger picture. So, with any AI application, the three major pillars for it is the software or the AI algorithms, the hardware, and the data. So these are the three major pillars, and it goes the same with autonomous vehicles as well. And we need to add one more pillar because it's vehicles. We we have to put the vehicle pillar there as well. So all of the perception, prediction, they all go into the same bucket. It's the AI, but it's not the it's not the only thing. We have to be very strong in the hardware as well, and take a software and hardware integrated approach that would ensure the highest safety. And data is the fuel. It powers the whole engine to move forward and grow at a exponential speed. And simulation, the whole data pipeline, all of that infrastructure goes into the data pipeline. And when you ask about what is special that we're building in terms of technology stack, it's a very hard question.、Um, four years ago or five years ago. Maybe that's a question companies have a simpler answer for.、Uh, I recall there were companies talking about, "Oh, we're stronger in perception, or we use more machine learning, etc." But I think autonomous driving is not a single technology. The difficulty in autonomous driving is to make a symphony from all of those aspects. None of the pieces can be weak. They all have to be perfect, so that's the difficult part. So I can't give you an answer. Like, what is special about our technology? But every single thing has to be there. So, are you creating everything in house? I know some people have outsourced simulation or HD maps. Are you building everything in house, or are you using some other components? Great question. The general philosophy is: we do what we have to do. And we don't do things that we don't need to. For example, we don't build our in-house lidar. We actually enjoy the very vibrant market, offering us a lot of variety and flexibility. And when you have a a direct communication channel with your suppliers, where you can give them a lot of feedbacks and, in some sense, impact how their new generations of products are made, that's already good enough for us. But there are a lot of things. For example, the whole software stack we build it entirely in house, and we build the the central compute, which is the most related part with the software. That's the brain, right? The physical brain. We build that in house, but we don't build every component of that in house either. And what about your HD maps? Is that something you're producing in house? Yes, we are. Yes, at this moment,、uh, we are producing that completely in-house. We have thought about working with outside providers, and two of the most popular areas where you you hear about working with outside vendors is one HD map, two simulation. Right? There are companies that specifically do that, and it seems like they also have partners as well. However, we we found challenges、uh, in doing so. Uh, both in HD mapping and in simulation, we have we keep an open mind, 
it might be a different way of collaboration with these companies than what people thought before. So I've seen a picture on your website of an SUV with the autonomous vehicle sensor unit on top, and it had like a flat rectangular piece on top, and it seemed like that contained the sensors, but also some signage, maybe some digital signage. Can you tell us about what the vehicles are looking like these days? Right. Um, I think what you're referring to uh, is our generation four setup. We have generation five now, which oh. will be rolled out <laughs> very soon. There are a lot of iterations. This is one thing fascinating about autonomy as well is, for example, when, when people first made the vehicles 100 years ago, uh, the OEMs didn't stop there. They continue to do R&D and make new generations. It goes the same with autonomous driving systems. There will be generation six as well. <laughs> it goes <laughs> on and on. Generation four is a, an effort from us to push for a solid state LIDAR. That was one of the main focus. And also second focus, you can't tell from the pictures because it's on the vehicle control unit. It's hidden inside, so it's not so obvious. For the solid state LIDAR, we see a great value in it. It breaks the central mechanical LIDAR into several separate solid state LIDARs, which can be better integrated uh, with the sensor modules on different areas of the vehicle. Because when you have uh, broken down the sensors, they can be scattered a little and cover uh, the whole area around the vehicle in a better way. So there are multiple LIDARs that work for different tasks and they're located in different places along the vehicle. Yes. Also a lot of cameras, uh, a lot of uh, radars as well. And am I right that there was some digital signage on there communicating to pedestrians, go ahead after you and that kind of thing? Yeah. We want to design this way of communication with all of the outside road users and tell them what we want to do. Because when you remove the driver, how we communicate today by eyes, right, by facial expression is gone. That's, I do that all the time. I look at the other people's face and figure out what they want to do. Uh, but in the future, there's nobody there. This is a, a critical way of communication. I think it's a great idea. As a pedestrian, if I'm going to cross, I look to the driver to make sure that they've seen me before I start to cross the crosswalk. And certainly having the autonomous vehicle blink something at me that says, I see you, go ahead, assuming they really do see me, I think that would be helpful. I like that direction that people are thinking about other ways to communicate. One of the questions that people ask is, with respect to the development of the software, do we need some sort of silver bullet or some different way of thinking about the computing challenge in order to get level four vehicles that can operate in a fairly extensive operational design domain? Or is it just a matter of plugging away and continuing to test using the same software methodologies that we have today? I think there is no silver bullet. It's not something that hasn't been invented today, but will solve all the problems in the future. I don't think there is this 
kind of solution. But we do try all we can in all of these components to make it better. And this is one of the major goals uh, and, and things that we're doing right now. One example is sometimes we want to think a little bit outside the box. For example, we work with some municipals, both in China and outside China as well. There are certain corners that is just really hard to see. <laughs> you know, we know that it is blocked. The, the self-driving car's vision is blocked, and we know how to deal with uncertainties in blocked areas. Uh, that is in place. However, if we can be given an, a different perspective, something else that can help us to see a little bit further on the road, this might be helpful. So this is also something we're trying to do. Take the sensor suite on our vehicle today. Maybe put it in somewhere else on the traffic light, on the pole, on the street, and send some information back to me. Yeah, this is, uh, I think, one of the things that can help reduce the difficulty uh, in, in urban scenarios. Yeah, there's been a lot of questions around V to I, vehicle to infrastructure, communication. The general view in the United States has been that if you require changes to infrastructure, then it will take 30 years before <laughs> anybody's got enough stuff put out on the roadway <laughs> to be helpful. Although it certainly seems since the operational design domain is likely to be limited to urban cores in the beginning and then to expand slowly. It seems like you could at least try it in some of the busiest urban cores where there are the most road users and, and different scenarios, as you point out. It seems like it could be helpful. One of the questions I had for you in thinking about, and, and we'll get a little more into your testing in various areas, but how do you see the infrastructure differences between cities in China and cities in the United States? Yeah, I think this is the most well-known differences between uh, the two countries when it comes to autonomous driving and the whole uh, infrastructure uh, in general. The attitude is certainly very different. We have to admit that uh, from the local municipals and from the regulatory perspective. Uh, in China, the whole country is quite determined to have all of its infrastructures digitalized. That does not only include the road. They want to digitalize a lot of things, the way the whole infrastructure in a nutshell. They also want to digitalize the, the vehicles. So that is one of the biggest wave that autonomous driving is going to ride in China. And it's becoming one of the top priorities for OEMs, for legislators, for everyone. So that certainly does make a lot of difference. A lot of cities are building this infrastructure in the designated areas. What we're trying to do is to give them feedback because we know they cannot build this expensive device everywhere covering all the roads. We need to give them feedback on where we need it the most and how we're going to use it. The second point I want to make is that I agree uh, with the industry that self-driving cars cannot rely on V2X. That's for sure. There is no debate there. But we always love additional information, uh, especially 
if we can identify the places where we need it the most. Our Shanghai robotaxis, for example, they are all connected to the V2X from the traffic light. So we always double check, did we see that correctly, <laughs> as, as extra source of information. And so traffic lights and what other types of infrastructure are you seeing today in cities in China or do you expect to see soon? Is there lane mar special lane marking? Is it more about dividing bicycle riders from cars or how are the ways that they're thinking about infrastructure different? I love the division between bicyclists and cars. Of course, our vehicle is not going to assume there will never be bicyclists or pedestrians on the road, but it's, it's just really nice. I don't know if you bike. I did before when I was in China, and the smell from all the vehicles was just not bearable <laughs> to be riding along with them, unfortunately. Yeah. And having that the division uh, between the two, is, is, it's fantastic, and it's certainly safer in any sense. So that's one thing that we love. I also personally experienced some of the very high tech lane markings. It vibrates. <laughs> and I, I love these things. I love these innovations and I love to see how we can work with them as well. I think autonomous driving, if it's possible, it's not just the autonomous driving company's thing. It's not just the OEM's thing. We want the whole society to participate in it. And the other communications that could happen, you mentioned traffic lights, but also other vehicles on the road, like the public transit buses. Is China thinking about ways that other vehicles might communicate with each other? The V2V communication, one of the tricky thing is that you can't force every single vehicle to have it. That's, yeah, that's a key challenge. And especially there are a lot of non-motor vehicles in China. We've seen the three-wheel things there. I don't even know how to call them. Uh, we've seen a lot of them uh, and bicyclists and of all different weird shapes. You can't force everyone to wear this device all the time. So it's less practical. But there is something that we, we have we are in, in discussion with some municipals is that when the municipal decide to do some constructions, which happens everywhere, all the time in China, in Shenzhen, where we test, there are roads that look different from morning to noon after lunch in the afternoon and at evening. So it, it's crazy. So if we can know these constructions ahead of time, it's very helpful. This is something that we can do. It's not that hard. So you are creating an autonomous driving system, but you're not creating a vehicle itself. So tell us a little bit about partnerships that you're having with OEMs and with ride hail services in terms of how does your technology ultimately get out to the world? Would it be in a vehicle sold to the public or are you expecting to partner both with OEMs and ride hail and create a service? Yeah, there are different layers in this ecosystem when L4 is a reality. The first layer is OEM, they produce the vehicles. The second layer is us, we produce the driver. There's also the third and fourth layer, uh, which sometimes people confuse them into one. 
Uh, there's the top layer is where the users can hail a self-driving car. That's your Uber, your Lyft, and in China, that's Didi, that's Alibaba app. We are working with them. That's how you get the users become a mobility service. But there is also another layer beneath it is who operates these vehicles on the ground. Uh, it's not going to be the OEMs operating all of these vehicles. It's not going to be AutoX either. So we also need to work with these local fleet owners. They can be taxi companies. They can be the mobility fleet owners from OEM. For example, actually all of the major OEMs, they have a mobility sub company to do that. This is one of their trials or, or efforts into the next generation of mobility, right? They don't want to just become OEMs and sell vehicles and then that's it. And so we need to work with everyone in the whole ecosystem if we don't want to do it all by ourselves and if we want to scale faster. This is also one of the barriers in business when you want to enter a lot of market. It's one of the difficulties in doing a successful autonomous driving company. But once you get the pieces into place, it, it's faster. It's a really interesting point that you're separating out the ride hail uh, mobility company aspect from the fleet operator because a number of people have made the point here in the United States with respect to Uber and Lyft that they don't own the assets. The drivers bring their own car. Why would they? <laughs> yeah, and, and they can't even really tell the drivers when to show up or where to go or where to drive. They don't even really control the routing of the fleet. I mean, somebody could just turn off their app and then turn it back on five minutes later, and you don't control what they did in the meantime. So the routing algorithm as to where you send the car is really quite different from what Uber and Lyft might use today when they they don't own the cars and they can't control the drivers. And so I'm not sure where that the routing problem, which is quite complex, sits. Does it sit with a fleet operator, with the mobility service? How do those pieces work together? But somebody is going to have to own the autonomous vehicle. And then maybe they lease it to a fleet operator who is in charge of keeping them charged and clean and deploying them to the right neighborhoods so that they can get to the people at the right time. Seems like there's a lot, a lot there. In China, who currently serves that purpose of having experience as a fleet operator? Usually, the mobility network companies are giants, right? And usually OEMs are also big companies but not the fleet operators. This is a more, much more fragmented market where you can own 10 vehicles and become a fleet operator, or you can own 5,000 or, or 10,000. I think the largest taxi company is somewhere around 40,000 vehicles. That's a lot of vehicles, but still that's a tiny drop in the ocean in terms of all the vehicles running on the street. So I think this is continue, it will continue to be like that because it's asset heavy. It's also operations heavy. It doesn't have the network effect or the effect of scale, the power of scale. So it makes sense for local business owners to become a fleet operator. And I think that's also a good approach 
forward in the future as well. We work with taxi companies from Shenzhen. We work with taxi companies from Shanghai. We're going to announce uh, the partner very soon. They're very excited to become the future operator of these vehicles. It's so interesting because in the United States, the taxi companies were incredibly disrupted by the appearance of Uber and Lyft. Many of them went out of business. And if you asked just about anyone in this ecosystem, who would you trust to be a really good fleet operator to manage the complex system of deploying autonomous vehicles, it would not in a million years be a taxi company because they wouldn't even take credit cards, right? I mean, the reason that we needed Uber in San Francisco in the day was because you couldn't get a taxi if you needed one. So when you talk about a small local operator who perhaps has some experience with this, it seems if that's who's going to clean the cars and deploy the cars, then certainly the vehicle routing problem is going to be handled by a DD or, or someone at that level who's a technology company and who's going to designate this is where everybody's going. It, it doesn't seem like a local taxi operator is going to have these kinds of complex algorithms. In China, the taxi services are all on the platform of DD and us. Okay. <laughs> they found a way to coexist with each other. So they drive for DD. They act as drivers on the DD platform. Yes. And people know that it's a taxi company. So that was a huge conflict between you know, rivals like DD and local taxi companies. And they found a way to, to live together. And both sides are, are happy to some extent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, in a sense, eventually, it's all going to be on one of the biggest platforms. And some of the taxi companies, when they are big enough and tech enough, they still maintain their own app. And the, the local people love it. They get special coupons. They know the company for 20 years. They still use their app. I see. So they don't use the DD app. They might use the app use for the both. local. Yeah, they have both. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a, a much better symbiosis than we have here in the United States where the taxi companies have fought Uber tooth and nail. So tell us about the ride hailing service in Shanghai. And are you also operating a ride service with Alibaba in, I guess, is that in Shanghai or Shenzhen? Yeah, the collaboration is nationwide. So it doesn't restrict to a single city. It's just how we scale things. There's a priority. We first launched in Shanghai. It's anyone can, can use it. Anyone can hail it. The next step is to have Shenzhen robotaxis online. The reason is because Shenzhen as a city still do not allow uh, like a robotaxi pilot at this moment. Uh, we can do testing with selected customers, but it's not completely open to public yet. Uh, that's the only reason. There's also more cities that we are planning. So how does it work in Shanghai? The Alibaba ride hail service is called uh, Autonavi yes. and they have an app and you open your app and can you choose a uh, autonomous vehicle or human driver or do, do they just send you whichever makes sense? <laughs> uh, I think the Lyft uh, app 
have autonomous vehicles versus normal vehicles. They they categorized in this way. On auto navi, it's not like that way. They have how you call it, like economy mm. uh, X and mm. black, something like that. Yeah, and we are one of the X. It's it's a comfort ride. Uh, because the Lincoln vehicles, they're they're not the lowest end vehicles. They're they're okay. So, <laughs> so you're using a higher end vehicle, and so <laughs> if I request the higher end service, like Uber yeah. Black Car kind of service in Shanghai, I might get an autonomous vehicle. You can choose to hail us along with others. This is one of their special business model. Is whoever. Uh, is going to be the fastest to answer, or cheapest. We're going to be selected by the user. So the user holds the the choices.、Uh, they can not hail AutoX at all if they want. How are, is AutoX designated within the、yeah. Alibaba app? Yeah, you can see the choice with AutoX. You can also see DD there. <laughs> I see. Okay. So you open the app and. If you choose the more expensive service, then there are options within that, and one of those、yeah. is AutoX. Yes. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Okay. And is there a safety driver in Shanghai? For now, there is. It is required by law to have a safety driver. We don't have a co-driver there. It's just the safety driver. Just one,、mm-hmm. and how does the approval? I assume you had to get approval from the city of Shanghai to run this service. Is that a permit that you received? How long is it, does the permit last for? Is the government technically a partner in that business? Yeah, there are certainly permits to be acquired. Otherwise, we, it's illegal to operate. Similar to what we have in California. When we think about U.S., different states are very different. But let's take California as the example because they are, on my experience, they are one of the most educated municipals in terms of autonomous driving. There are several categories of permits. One type is testing permit, where you have to have a human driver and you can't take outside passengers. The second type is. Robotaxi pilot permit to be able to do what we're doing in Shanghai, we have to have this,、uh, so we can take passengers. But still, it's required to have a driver on the driver seat. The third type is fully driverless permit, which do not exist in Shanghai today.、Mm-hmm. Uh, but we just got the California driverless permit, and a lot of cities in China are talking with us as well. I think that's the next step. Yes, I was going to ask you to compare. So,、ah. let's talk about Shanghai for a moment. Is, is the government a partner in your business, or do they just provide the permit? Oh, they just provide the permit. And what did you have to show to the government to get the permit to operate in Shanghai? What did you have to tell them or show them? And how did that compare to the process in California of getting a permit? In terms of testing permit, I would have to say the Chinese government's permit is harder to acquire. The core concern in both locations is how do you prove that your vehicle is safe, right? That's the core concern.、Uh, other than other requirements like insurance, that's、right. the same everywhere. But how do you prove that it's safe? I think in California,、uh, the government trusts the companies more. You are self-certifying yourself. 
when you get a test permit. Uh, I think it makes sense because as the companies, we are the people who care about this the most. Uh, if there's anything that is going wrong, the company takes the, the responsibility. So this is how it is in California. But in China, uh, the government is taking a more detailed monitoring approach. They need to test us, like how we get a driver permit for us as humans. We go to a enclosed campus where they do testing uh, of different tasks. And for each task, for example, in Shanghai, we had to do, I think, was 50 times repetitively. And if we pass all of it, they would consider you to be okay to do this. For example, a lane change with a pedestrian in the front with 50 meters away while your, your vehicle is driving at the speed of something. Uh, <laughs> it's a structured testing scenario. And then they would give you the test permit. And to get the uh, pilot permit, uh, you have to accumulate a certain mileage, demonstrate that it's operating on the public road safely without any accident, etc. Then you get it. And how many miles is that in Shanghai? Uh, in different locations, it's it's different. Uh, it's not a high mileage because, in essence, the robo taxi pilot permit is not that different from testing permit. So when you do the closed course private campus test, a lot of people in the United States have suggested the same kind of thing, saying, "Why doesn't the government do some sort of a test?" First of all, did you know ahead of time what the items were that were going to be tested? Oh, they would tell you. Yeah, they tell everybody. They would tell you. It's like when you get your driver's license. We have to know. <laughs> yeah. Yes, except when we get our driver's license, it's not on a closed course, so you don't actually know what's going to happen when you drive from here to there. Anything could happen. So it's interesting that they tell you what the test is going to test. It. The There are some improvisions on the side. The criticism of this type of testing here in the United States, the criticism has been, well, anybody can teach the car just to pass the test. And what if on the 70th time it hits the pedestrian? Like you can never really know, right? This is the ultimate debate in deployment of autonomous vehicles. You can't really prove a negative. I mean, how do you know when it's safe? How safe is safe enough? How many miles do you have to drive for statistical significance to know that we drove enough miles to say we definitely didn't hit the pedestrian every time? Setting aside government testing, which, as you point out, I mean, they can test all they want, but if you go out on the road and you hit somebody, you're the one who's going to get sued. So there's only so much government test is is useful for. But how do you think about that? I have to say I agree <laughs> with people. <laughs> It. It's very different what they test versus what's going to happen on the real road. We can never simulate what's going to happen on the real road. To some extent, it does give the government a bit of comfort, or at least they know this company is legit to a certain extent that at least they can pass this bar. I think it works to filter out the companies that are really shaky. Or they really don't care about safety at all. But for the the good ones, the ones with advanced technology, it really cannot differentiate them. It doesn't mean this company scored a ninety versus that company <laughs> scored at eighty.、Um, right. It doesn't work like that. This, you know, it's part of the the 
debate in the United States about the idea, as you say, of self-certification of safety versus pre-market approval, as they have in some in, in European countries. And in some way, people say, well, the government doesn't really know. And so pretending that they're going to test you and then say, oh, it's all, it's all good, it doesn't really add that much comfort. Are there any rules? So we talked about self-certification. In the United States, as you know, at the federal level, we have these federal motor vehicle safety standards, but there are no uh, federal motor vehicle safety standards for the autonomous driving system, for the brains of the car. And this is a matter of huge debate here. Many in Congress have said, we should insist that NHTSA go out immediately and start drafting these federal regulations, which would be mandatory. And the reaction is, okay, but how are we going to test it, first of all? Even if we knew what to put in the regulation, and I would say I don't think they do know how to draft what the regulation should be, but even if they did, how would they test it for all the reasons we've just talked about? Are there any nationwide safety standards in China? I think in the U.S. there is a guideline from NHTSA on 12 core areas of concern related to the safety of autonomous driving. And for example, the California driverless permit approval process use that guideline and check how different companies implement in all 12 aspects. For the, uh, based on the experience of our team communicating with the California DMV and other local authorities, I think what they're doing is smart. They're doing it in a very smart way. They're one of the most educated officials uh, about autonomy, technically, that I have ever seen. I think that's because all of the most amazing companies are all here. And they, they're very aware of the most advanced technology. So that's very comforting. Very, very comforting. When it goes to China, I have to say, I think the, the process is less so because they listen when they push out these regulations. They listened more to those in other industries rather than people who are coming from the self-driving industry itself. I think this is something that we're trying to change at the same time. Uh, they listen to a lot of OEMs, right, because they're all big guys. <laughs> uh, access to very high levels, but uh, listening to the people who are actually making the system is critical. I think this is something the U.S. is doing very good. So in China, are there an equivalent of the federal motor vehicle safety standards for regular cars? Yes. And then is there a standard, an actual similar standard for the autonomous driving system? A similar in terms of the NHTSA's guideline, but there isn't such a regulation like uh, the vehicle standards. The vehicle standards, we're talking about the U.S. standard, European and China standard, right? The China standard is very similar to that of Europe, but that's not in place yet. So for the autonomous driving system, there are rules, but they are not as specific as for the rest of the vehicle. Yes. And are the rules, are they 
voluntary. You mentioned the 12 aspects of the guidance in, that NHTSA has, which is entirely voluntary. Are they voluntary in China or is there a specific rule that you have to comply with? I would say you have to implement it. Otherwise, you don't get the permit. And so is that at a national level then, as opposed to each city or province in China? The national level has a guideline. It doesn't have too much of the specifics. So there's still room for interpretation for each municipal. That causes different cities to have slightly different requirements. I see. And so because the permit is given by the city of Shanghai, they have their own rules. And that's what you had to meet when you did the testing to yeah. get the permit. I'm happy to see that there are now the cities are talking with each other to acknowledge each other's permit, which removes a, a headache for us. <laughs> now, you mentioned the permit to test without a driver in the car in California. AutoX is only the third company to receive such a permit, I think, in California. And you mentioned how sophisticated the California DMV has been in, in working with companies. What was that process like? You mentioned the 12 areas of safety that NHTSA had articulated. I know AutoX has put out uh, a voluntary safety self-assessment, which NHTSA recommended, but of course did not require companies to do here in the U.S. And in those documents, typically companies address the different ways that they handle things like redundancy and being sure that there's a fallback position for the car and things of that nature. Did you sit and go through those with the California DMV? Did they ask for any data? Were there a certain number of miles of testing that had to be completed? What, what did that process look like? Yeah, they certainly did uh, look into all of the aspects and how we implement these things that we put on the application. So there were communications like a thesis defense. Um, there, are also, <laughs> there, are, there are also office visits where they would actually check how the vehicle, the system is behaving, especially when it comes to uh, special scenarios. Like if you hear something like a, hear a, a siren, how would you pull over, etc. I think one thing that I was impressed with is more, one, they're very technical. They communicate with Waymo or, or Neural, those companies that has gotten the permit, and also those ones that haven't yet, which will be uh, in the future. The second thing is, I like their way of thinking. It's not just about the AI. That's usually where people think a lot about, uh, but it's not just that. Uh, it's the whole uh, systematic approach how you ensure the safety, whether or not, how accurate do you recognize that pedestrian? That's one thing. That's, I always call it the upper bound of a system, how good your, your algorithms are, uh, how reliable your compute is. But we also need to think about the lower bound. There will be cases where you don't recognize something. What are you going to do? in that situation. No matter how hard we push on the upper bound, if we cannot push up the lower bound, we cannot guarantee the safety. So in addition to the permits from the DMV, you also have a permit from the CPUC in California to run a pilot ride service program. 
the pilot program for the CPUC does not allow you to charge money, but does allow you to transport uh, passengers. Have you operated such a pilot? Yes, we have. It was to local users in the city of San Jose, and we we did want the the users who are actual users, meaning they're not here for fun. They're not here to just see how it works. They use it to go to shopping, to go to work. We like those customers. <laughs> and are you still running that, or was that just for a short period of time? It's not supposed to be just for a short period of time, but right now we're not operating it. The reason is because of COVID nineteen. One other aspect uh, of the AutoX driver is the ability to take the same technology and use it in multiple use cases. For instance, for delivery, for a semi truck, um, all different use cases. What are you doing on the delivery and logistics side? We already have uh, prototypes of robot trucks. They are light trucks in the size of a, a UPS vehicle. We also have prototype of semi trucks as well. This we call it the expansion in in breadth. Why would we do that? I think the core philosophy here is with the shared knowledge, with diversified testing, and an enormous variety of data. It's very helpful to build the truly capable and reliable driver in doing so. We do try very hard to avoid only testing in a certain type of ODD. For example, if you only test in a city、uh, or even one highway. For robot truck, and you believe you have solved the problem, it's very easy to falsely believe that、oh, we've solved the problem, but actually not. That would be very dangerous. The engineers, when they build the system, they, there will be assumptions made that is wrong. So, if data is only accumulated in restricted ODD, that's very likely、uh, what's going to happen. And robot taxi companies, we see recently. Kind of a trend, and I see a lot of media. They are very interested in this trend. Is that、uh, robot taxi companies are pivoting or shifting to robot truck? I disagree with the word shifting. I don't think it's pivoting. It's expansion.、Uh, Waymo is doing that. Aurora is doing that. It's a pure expansion, and there's a lot of advantage. It's a natural advantage for companies who's made robot taxis to expand into other areas. Because it's easier to scale when you have robot taxi in a lot of types of roads in urban environments, the data quality that you have accumulated is the highest. We have seen turkeys. Okay, we have seen、um, <laughs> any kind of animals in the urban settings, and when you transfer that knowledge、uh, into the robot trucks, it's naturally more advantageous. So when we built the driver, we we built a driver that can drive different kind of vehicles. But when we developed that, we also had a trial of robo delivery as well. The reason is we want to find the commonalities and differences in the use cases when we build our system to be very aware.、Uh, there are certainly things that are different driving a truck versus driving a light truck versus driving a robo taxi, right? Certainly,、uh, but we need to know what exactly they are. 
And it would seem like the sensor suite would be different, the sensor fusion, the, all of, of those components would be different with a truck. How do you think about adapting the vehicle? Yeah, uh, robo trucks do need to see further because the, the vehicle is heavier. So you need to know longer ahead of time to, to predict longer, further distances. That's uh, one of the differences. The control of the vehicle is also different. But I would say three years ago, if you ask us to change our stack to a different vehicle, it's a pain. We didn't want to do that. <laughs> but now it's getting simpler and simpler because we we design the sensors more in a more modular way and the entire infrastructure is built better and better when we shift from the, the stacks from a robo taxi to a, a light truck it was easy it was very easy they're all similar sizes it's just a bigger robo taxi like a little <laughs> shuttle uh, size so we're seeing that um difference to be smaller and smaller for any company. If you want to build a truly safe and reliable driver, the things that you have to do is enormous. You have to do the hardware, you have to do the integration, the simulation. So the differences between different vehicles is relatively very small. What does the next year or two look like for AutoX in terms of expansion, growth, goals? What are you looking to accomplish? Yeah, for one or two years, in terms of autonomous driving, that's short term. <laughs> the goal, <laughs> so the goal is still super crystal clear to go driverless with more and more vehicles and in bigger and bigger area, not only in San Jose, but also in other cities as well. We're already in discussions uh, with cities. Uh, the second thing that we need to do is exactly what we talked about. Uh, we already have prototypes of robo trucks and, and robo semi-trucks. So we need to expand further uh, in the logistics as well. This is to have more variety of use cases. Because when you look at today's world, right, there are a lot more robo taxis than robo trucks. I think I recall the highest number of truck fleet was like 40 or 50 compared to RoboTaxi that's still very premature. So we need to bring that up to speed as well. So are you looking to expand into other cities in California, in the United States, in China? That's certainly one of the options. We are in discussions as well. We're always open-minded. In terms of our business model, we don't really choose the cities because we want to do operations there. We serve our customers. If there is in the future a customer's need to go to, I don't know, a city in U.S. or Europe, we're going there. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was great to hear about what AutoX is doing. Thank you, Michelle. Great talking to you. Thanks again to Jewel for joining us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of our season five episodes on our new publication, smartercars.substack.com. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.